Hello, and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast. I'm Dave Baxter, one of Asset Allocator's contributors, and today I'm joined by Morningstar Chief Investment Officer Dan Kemp and my fellow writer David Thorpe. Dan, thank you for coming on. Very good to have you here. So here we are, another year of the pandemic, but to my eye, perhaps it's interesting that 2022 seems to have more of a focus on some of the kind of macro side of things. You know, we've had rate rises now in the UK, one so far, quite a surprising one. The US has accelerated its tapering program, setting the scene for some rate rises further down the line. And of course, inflation has been hotter than many have expected, though some still do have their fingers crossed that it will fade away later on in the year. I think this, of course, makes kind of an interesting moment in which to turn again to the, you know, the many kind of concerns and risks potentially facing the bonds market. You know, some asset allocators will still kind of take the almost 60-40 approach or make very heavy use of bonds. Where do you stand on that? You know, how has your view kind of shifted on the asset class? And, you know, do you feel there are still appealing corners of that universe? Well, hello, David. Yes, it's it's great to be with you uh, today. So uh, it's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That we entered 2022 and bonds are interesting. Uh, we're so used to them being the, the dowdy uh, cousin of equities. Everyone's talk about what's going on in equity markets uh, and the opportunities we see there. But you're absolutely right. As we look at the year ahead, bonds, our view on bonds, how people hold bonds, and most importantly, the job they're doing in portfolios is incredibly important. We're seeing challenges to the bond market in terms of inflation and potential rate rises and and the arcane calculations of of bond math that take us through how that uh, feeds into returns. But the key questions I said, when you look at the the bonds in your portfolio is what job are they there to do? So often we think about bonds and all investments in our portfolio being there to deliver returns. Well, we know that bonds are unlikely to do that given where yields are. And so we need to radically think about uh, why we own them, what they're meant to do. You've mentioned sort of bonds are interesting again, but uh, have the risks changed in the sense, you know, everybody right now is is thinking, you know, bond yields are going to rise or they're going to stay higher because interest rates are, and one has to think about how to allocate to bonds in a higher interest rate environment. But actually, is there still, you know, the possibility that something goes wrong and bond prices rise again? And how does one think about um, risk in, in that context? Because the economic outlook is so, I suppose, muddied. I, I, I'm try, I've been trying not to use the word unprecedented, but I've just done it. Um, but no, you know, nobody knows that the types of risks that we have are very, very idiosyncratic. To what extent do we have to think about bonds still being the downside protector and how relevant that is? Yeah, Dave, I mean, we've, we're a couple of minutes into this conversation. We haven't said that the future is uncertain yet. So uh, it's so important that we, uh, that we break our duck and remind ourselves that you're, you're spot on, that the, the future is really uncertain. It's, it's not a, a case of one-way traffic. Uh, it's not that uh, anyone expects to think bonds just rise for you. I think where we are is that 
everyone uh, is more aware of the risk in, in bonds than they have been for a while. And so that's changing the mindset of investors. It's changing the expectation of investors. It doesn't actually change the risks. So as we think about uh, bond prices and bond yields, uh, we know that yields have been very, very low for a long period of time, historically low levels. Uh, we know that uh, there's been an enormous amount of demand that's flowing through, concerns about deflation, uh, you know, not that long ago as we were deep into the, into the pandemic. So it, it's, it's not that the, the fact that yields are low and are expected to rise into the future, that's not a surprise, it's that people haven't focused on it. And so then when you think about the risk in bonds, then, uh, again, it's worth thinking about not just the risk for bonds, but the scenario uh, where bonds are facing similar risks to equities and what happens to the to the equity market. So um, in the past, you mentioned the, 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 the 60-40 portfolio earlier. So it's in the past, we've had this wonderful situation for investors where uh, equity prices have typically gone up and bond prices have typically gone up because the, the real yield, so the yield above inflation uh, that people demand on all the investments has fallen. Well, it can only fall so far. It's fallen to very low levels. It can fall further, but at some point, uh, you get situations when real yields rise. And when real yields rise, then that can push down the price of bonds and the price of equities at the same time because people demand higher returns to their investments, which is another way of saying they're only prepared to pay lower prices. So there is a scenario, uh, and we had it in 1994. That's the, that's the big one that people remember. We had it in the well, briefly in the taper tantrum uh, almost a decade ago now where you can have uh, correlated declines in equity and bond markets. We always have to be aware of that scenario. But that's only one scenario, and it's not typically the most prevalent scenario. Normally, uh, the sort of uh, periods of investor enthusiasm that are good for equities are bad for bonds and vice versa. That's why people tend to hold them uh, in these sort of 60-40 portfolios and and other multi-asset portfolios that you were talking about. And so what you're really talking about with bonds, if they're not a source of return, they're uh, a way of defending your equity portfolio. So then you have to think about what's bad for equities and will bonds support the portfolio in in that environment? So, of course, if people get very concerned about the outlook, if there's some sort of uh, event that panics people, then typically we see a decline in equity prices, uh, a fall in bond yields as people move from one asset class to another. Now, in that scenario, government bonds are still most likely to be your defensive asset, not in all scenarios, uh, but they are the most likely to to help you. What we've seen, and we can talk about this a a lot more, what we've seen is a lot of investors moving out of government bonds, trying to grab a little bit of extra yield in the corporate bond market. Corporate bonds don't always behave in the same way as government bonds. We, we did see investment-grade bonds kind of struggling last year alongside kind of the likes of gilts, didn't we? Um, but it's interesting, though, you seem you sound like you're still kind of an advocate of the um, government bond as a safe haven. But if you were kind of trying to construct, I suppose, a kind of diversification basket, would you, would you simply rely on fixed income or is, is there anywhere else you would turn to? Well, again, it depends on what you're trying to diversify. So if you if you look at equity marks at the moment, they're already 
pretty diversified in that uh, you've got uh, the, the the cheaper, more cyclical companies that have benefited as uh, as expectations of the economy have, have, have risen. So uh, financials, particularly energy companies, we've seen that. On the other hand, we've got the, to my mind, incredibly expensive technology stocks that have really benefited uh, from uh, concerns that the pandemic can continue. We all spend more time online and, and all, all those things. So there's, there's, there's an element of diversification, and we've seen that playing through in the last last couple of years, not not um, uh, not perfect diversification and, and not ideal uh, if you're a more cautious investor, but 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 we've seen some diversification there. As we think about about bonds, it's that particular scenario, a risk off scenario, where people suddenly become concerned. Now, in that scenario, the, the people have two choices really. They can just uh, ride through those periods of volatility because we know that over the long term, uh, if you have a broadly diversified portfolio, you'll probably do pretty well. So, if you're if you're a long term investor, then you can ride through that. But we know that some investors aren't able to stomach that volatility and a grave danger of selling out if they experience that volatility at exactly the wrong time, i.e. when when the price of their portfolio is low. And so if that's the scenario you're trying to protect against, uh, then bonds tend to be your, uh, your most dependable friend. But like all friends, they're not entirely dependable. Uh, there are periods, as I said, where like 94, you have rising real yields where they are, uh, where they fall in lockstep uh, with equity. So we have to be careful about saying they'll always protect a portfolio, uh, but they're the most likely to in the scenario when, where you need them. However, uh, remember that that's because government bonds are perceived as the lowest risk asset. That's not necessarily true of, of corporate bonds or higher bonds or other types of high risk bonds. Generally speaking, how, how can one think about risk at a portfolio level, but also very specifically risk in terms of bond allocation when we have so much central bank uh, bond buying because they're, you know, they're not an economic buyer. They, they've not sat down and went, bonds are cheap or expensive, so we'll do it or we'll compare that bond to that bond. They're doing it in, a, in an indiscriminate way. And that obviously changes the risk reward for that asset class. But does it for all asset classes as long as central banks are, are there? Uh, Dave, I'm going to do something very dangerous. I'm going to challenge you briefly on that comment. <laughs> I, I, oh, wow. So just on, on the point, I don't think they're being indiscriminate. What, what I think they are being um, is very uh, broad-based in their, in their buying. So you're absolutely right. They're buying uh, lots of different types of bonds, including corporate bonds in the US, uh, municipal bonds, and they've, we've seen high yields and so, some central banks even buying equity. So, so there's definitely a, a lot of buying. I wouldn't say it's indiscriminate. I'd say that they're, they're, they're specifically targeting bits of the market, but it's a, it's a broad piece of the market. So what the central banks are trying to do is lower the return on, on risk assets, um, support the market, provide liquidity, bring more support into, into higher risk, more economically sensitive assets. You know, it's, it's a classic quantitative easing, easing approach, but they're thinking about where on the curve they're buying to, to, to try, and, and try and do that. So, so I, I think what is absolutely true, though, is that when you see an enormous amount of buying in all sorts of areas, that's created a lot of upward price pressure, which has led to some of the... Uh, very, very high valuations that, that we've seen. And we're seeing high valuations in the, the high yield market, the investment grade market, as well as, of course, low base yields. And that's the concern that as central banks start pulling back at the same time that we're seeing short-term interest rates rise and inflation pressures, then there is a risk that uh, the bond yields 
uh, go much higher, the bond prices uh, fall. And, and that's why for some time now, we've had a sort of below usual exposure to government bonds, because we, we do think that they are unattractive assets as return generators in, in portfolios. We like the portfolio to work hard for, for investors. So, so we've, we've had less government bond exposure than, than usual. We've typically expressed that by having shorter dated bonds with less interest rate risk. But where we, uh, we have been uh, more negative more recently is on corporate bonds and higher bonds, because there we think you're not getting the return, but also you're, you're getting, particularly in investment grade, some of those risks we talked about with bond markets in general. Yeah, it was a really very strong run for high yield last year, wasn't it? And now, you know, people are questioning whether you're, you know, even the kind of optimists are saying you're probably not going to have the wonderful kind of perfect conditions of um, of the last year. In terms of, I mean, I suppose the other kind of function of bonds at least used to be income. Some people question that now. That's perhaps the other kind of one of the other big questions for allocators alongside where do I find diversification? But when it comes to income, I mean, are there any kind of favoured areas that you've tended to stick to? Anything that's kind of either continued to look appealing or perhaps shown a bit more promise in recent times? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, income obviously is one of the great challenges for investors. You know, if I roll the clock back uh, 20 years ago, it was so easy to build an income portfolio. Um, it was an absolute joy. You had uh, high yields from your from all types of bonds, frankly, uh, and you had high yields from your equities. And of course, over that period, we've seen uh, falling yields, which we've been talking about. We've also seen a decline in uh, in the yield from equities as uh, corporate managers across the world have switched um, from dividend payments to uh, to buybacks, which was a very different way of returning capital to shareholders. It's a, it's a perfectly logical way of, of doing it uh, because there are tax advantages and you, you have more control as, as company management. So, so it's not surprising that companies have, have done that. But of course, it's made the dividend less important in the minds of so many company uh, directors. Uh, and of course, that's um, uh, reduced the, the flow into, into the hands of, of investors and concentrated that flow in, in some ways. So, so we've, we've seen lower opportunities for, for yield. And so then the question is, well, why does your client need a, a yield? And in most cases, we know it's because they're in retirement and they don't want to buy an annuity, as would have been the case you know, 25 years ago when, when I started uh, thinking about this. Uh, now people want to keep their portfolio and deliver a yield from that portfolio. And for, for clients in that scenario, uh, then I think we just all have to accept that uh, the, the future is withdrawing a set amount of capital from the portfolio and, and not just relying on the natural yield uh, that the portfolio uh, develops. Because unless you're very wealthy and have an unusually low uh, desire for income, then you're, you're going to struggle to to cover all of your retirement costs uh, just on the on the natural yield from portfolio. So in that situation, it's more about thinking about the total return and making sure that you're controlling the volatility of the portfolio because volatility in the early years of retirement we know is 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 a big risk. But if you're in a different scenario where you can't start to 
uh, draw down your um, your pension. Let's say it's it's someone who just needs their their income topped up. They're you know still working. They're still young. They're looking for income from their portfolio. Then again, you're looking at, at dividends as being the primary source of, of income. Uh, emerging markets, uh, local currency bonds are a, an interesting source of income, but of course come with quite a degree of, of volatility. Mm-hmm. But you're but you're still there. Still are sources of dividend yield, but you're typically in some of the more volatile companies. And so then you have to be careful about how much reliance you put on the, the capital return in that portfolio and the stability of that portfolio. I suppose one interesting counterpoint, I must uh, I must caveat that um, I did first hear this from an um, equity income fund manager, but um, they, they made quite an interesting point that one criticism of the whole capital gains rather than natural income approach is you do introduce an element of market timing. Um, is there a kind of a way to kind of get around that or I mean that's a, an absolutely fair criticism uh, and uh, I, I don't think there's a there's an obvious way around it mm. um, you you could try to be clever about timing the the, the sales when prices are high but but in reality that's not how people's need for income works uh, the, the way that uh, the income for People everywhere works that they want something that's that's regular, which naturally results in a regular withdrawal from the from the portfolio. And the, the two important things there are uh, how much you withdraw, uh, because of course the the more you withdraw, the less likely it is that your capital is going to uh, reach the end of your end of your life. And I think a lot of people have over optimistic expectations of what uh, the amount they can withdraw because of life expectancy and, and expected returns. Uh, but the second thing is that starting volatility in your portfolio. So if you invest in a very high-risk portfolio uh, and then have a, a, a big withdrawal at the end of year one, just when, let's say, the markets have fallen sharply, then you're eating away at your capital much more quickly than if we've had a rise. So, so the, that's exactly a fair point, uh, and that's why dividend income uh, remains really important uh, but I don't think we can get a, a, around the fact that with yields where they are at the moment for an entire client's portfolio, uh, it really has to involve capital withdrawal and, and the stability of the portfolio, not just income. Dan, we've seen in recent years uh, the rise of a lot of alternative income type strategies. Lots of them are, are investment trust in, for example, music royalties, aircraft leasing, etc. How, how do you think about those? I mean, are they essentially there in some portfolios as a replacement for, for bonds, and if bond yields rise, those things become less attractive, or are they a, a genuine diversifier? I mean, the music royalties ones, there seems to be something every day where they've bought a new catalogue or a new one's been launched. They haven't quite got around to buying the songs I sing in the pub yet, but I, I think that could happen if this if this keeps going. But um, how do you think about those ones? Sorry, Dave, I'm still stuck with the idea of you singing in the pub. Um, so I think... A lot of people laugh when I suggest that, funnily enough. No. I haven't experienced that. I'm looking forward to it. Now, so when you when you think about um, alternatives, uh, particularly alternatives that are uh, you know going into an end client's portfolio, uh, then we have to remember that uh, these are probably very well known by the by the broader market. And if they're if they're popular, and of course things that produce income at the moment are popular, then the returns are likely to be quite low. And sometimes 
the structures used to produce those returns can be slightly convoluted uh, and and have things sort of deep in the uh, in the documentation uh, that uh, investors need to be need to be aware of. Secondly, we have to think about the communication with with clients uh, that we could come across something uh, as professional investors that we think is really, really attractive can come with some quite esoteric risks. But by the time you've communicated that to an investor, uh, then they might not be aware uh, at a deep level of what some of those risks are and, and what that might mean for them in the, in the long term. So uh, we, we've seen this sort of time and time before when uh, people have try to squeeze out returns that aren't really there through convoluted structures and, and very niche asset classes. Uh, and, and that's led to, to all sorts of challenges. So I, I don't want to be a Luddite. You know, the, you know finance continues to, to move on and, and new opportunities, new asset classes arise. But uh, I think the first rule as an investor to, is to really understand what it is that you're buying, know how the return is generated, and be skeptical of, uh, of things that you haven't come across before. We do an incredibly important job as custodians of our clients futures. Uh, and so w- that requires us to have a, a deep understanding uh, of, uh, of what it is that we're investing in. And as I say, that, that skepticism of, of new things until it, something's been really proven to deliver, uh, not just in good markets, but in bad markets as well. So you'd like to see it in a full market cycle. I mean, I suppose that is one of the kind of chief criticisms of those kind of um, hypnosis and those vehicles. <laughs> Dave, you've managed to say something in about 10 words there, which I struggle to say in about four minutes. But yes, that's exactly right. Uh, sort of see it through a full market cycle, understand the, the ups and downs uh, before overcommitting to things like this. And would you apply that thinking to, I mean, another really popular part of the alternative space, particularly last year, was infrastructure. Again, related to their income, but people are very keen on the fundamentals, the inflation links element, and, you know, many, many appealing characteristics. I think in infrastructure is different in that it has been through quite a few cycles. Uh, you can look around at the infrastructure uh, around us and people have been investing in that for a very long time. Uh, and so it is uh, better understood than some of these other areas. It's been in the hands of, of retail investors and institutional investors for, for a long time. So I think infrastructure is different. Again, you have to look at the source of income uh, for for infrastructure and therefore the stability of the of the payments and the financial structure as well particularly the amount of leverage in the in the structure so it's it seems to be a uh, an asset class that benefits from really good professional management uh, that can assess all of those things it's, a, it's still quite a quite a niche as far as uh, retail investors and investors are concerned but it's it's well established the uh, the, the risks are, are well known uh, and so it's something that, that we certainly include in our uh, income portfolios turning to i suppose back to what we might call conventional assets um i was interested you you mentioned earlier the ever present concern about kind of valuations on equities how do you feel about that i mean is that fundamentally still kind of a us concern or has it spread more widely and is there any way of kind of getting around that well the us certainly seems to be the most extreme <laughs> pocket of of, uh, of high valuations we're seeing, but again, it's not universal in the U.S. either. It just appears to be more universal because of the concentration of the big U.S. indices in uh, highly priced technology stocks. Uh, and so, actually, there's, there's still opportunities in the U.S. market. Uh, they're just more more hidden. But as you get outside the U.S. Uh, 
we look at European markets, so the, the French market, for example, uh, that uh, looks pretty expensive. Other markets in Europe look pretty expensive. Uh, then um, you, Japan looks relatively attractive compared to other um, developed markets, but still compared to history uh, looks looks pretty expensive. And so with there's not an enormous amount of uh, of cheap assets around the world. In fact, I go further and say there are very few genuinely cheap assets around the world. There's plenty of opportunities for relative valuation. So to look for assets that are cheaper than U.S. tech stocks, uh, which, of course, if you're holding stocks for a long period of time, uh, that can provide an advantage. But uh, there aren't uh, very many uh, actual uh, uh, cheap assets out there. We're fortunate in the UK in that the UK is one of the cheapest markets we can find. It's it's right up there with uh, some of the uh, EM countries around the world that are going through a, a difficult time. That's primarily due to the makeup of the, the UK market, which has quite unpopular industries in it. So uh, banks have been very unpopular. Energy companies until recently were unpopular and they still look good value. So it's, it's not just the, the countries uh, that people should look at, but it's the underlying makeup of those benchmarks and the indices. How do you, I suppose, separate um, cheap or cheaper from cheap or cheaper for a reason? How, how does one think about that? Some of the UK stocks that might might appear cheap, uh, one could construct the case that their business models are, are structurally challenged uh, for the very long term. And, you know, are you then trying to catch a falling knife by by investing in them? Yeah, Dave, that's a really, really good point. And I would go as far to say that that whenever something's cheap, it is cheap for a reason. Uh, thousands of investors have, have had to decide that they don't like it uh, for a particular reason. The, the question is, have they gone too far in their assessment of how negative that uh, the, the prospects for asset class are? And we obviously saw this in uh, in energy companies back uh, in in. Uh, 2020, just uh, you know, in the, in the height of the pandemic, uh, where people were expecting energy companies to, to collapse. Probably that's what they were priced for. They're priced for destruction, pretty much. And uh, we took the view then that actually the management of the major energy companies were, were sensible. Uh, they would pull in their horns in terms of investments, that they'd be able to conserve cash, they'd be able to get through uh, that period of, of very low and, for one day, negative energy prices, uh, and would be able to uh, deliver uh, good returns on a, a realistic assessment of what the long-term energy price is. So quite often, it's looking through the immediate panic, the immediate negativity into the longer term. We, we saw that in, in energy companies, we saw that in higher bonds around the same time uh, and investment grade actually uh, as well and, and and banks so banks are another great example where uh, in the depths of 2020 people were expecting or appeared to be expecting another uh, 2008 financial crisis and actually if you looked at the uh, stress tests uh, that the European Central Bank had done that the Bank of England had done Actually, banks were not in the same place uh, that they were just over a decade ago. They were in a, a much stronger uh, financial situation. And so as you stress tested the banks, it was difficult to get to the price uh, that they were trading at at the, at the time. So so it's, it's not about whether something is cheap for a reason. It's just whether that reason is overemphasized in the price or underemphasized. And you're right. So when you look at a 
a falling knife. There's, there's, there's two things that we can describe there. One is a continued sharp decline in prices, which means something's just becoming more and more unpopular. And the other is a degradation in the underlying fundamentals of the business, which is what's really dangerous uh, when a when a business model is is collapsing and can't be uh, and can't be redeemed then then that's a, a dangerous situation um, that's when the future looks generally different from the part from the past but when it's just price then you can actually build your conviction in asset price if we're just seeing deeper and deeper discounts to the fundamentals of the business I suppose the kind of concerns about valuations it's it's quite a challenging debate because obviously we could have been having this same conversation perhaps five years ago and I remember Back then, there were some allocators who actually decided to essentially have no dedicated exposure to the US, for example, which would have not worked out well. How do you kind of express these views on valuation? Do you find yourself going kind of underweight those so-called more expensive names? And one big question is always, do we see a catalyst for, for example, the US coming off the boil, that kind of thing? So I think... When we when we go back and look at decisions of the past and talk about things not working out well, then it's really important to think about the um, the purpose of the portfolio. So mm-hmm. if you had been zero weighted in the US uh, over the last five years, then my guess is that your client would be much closer to their financial goals uh, than they were at that point. They'd have made a, a, a great deal of money. Uh, and so in that sense, the investment strategy from an absolute perspective was a huge success. Uh, now, from a relative perspective, and if you're comparing yourself against kind of peers and typical benchmarks, the 60-40 benchmark movie, uh, then it was not successful. And so there's, there's two different things there. Are you trying to help your client get to their financial goals, or are you trying to deliver superior returns to a, to a, a benchmark or um, a, a, you know, an index or, or a peer group? And if you're trying to do the, the latter, then, of course, uh, the amount of relative benchmark risk you take is, is really important. So if you say, I'm going to take out the largest equity market, not invest at all, then you're implicitly saying that the absolute return is much more important to me than the relative return. If you're running a portfolio where relative returns are important, then you've got to be very careful about taking those uh, those huge positions. Uh, and that's why obviously most people um, stick much closer to the to, to the benchmark. So it, it, it does go back to, to what you're trying to trying to achieve. But there's no doubt that we've seen a, a rise in all equity markets over that over that period. And, and where we are today is that the US is not just very, very expensive. And as I say, that's because of dominance by tech stocks. So you've got to look beyond that into other parts of the market. It's not just that the US is very, very expensive, but also because they've become uh, so much more expensive so quickly compared to other markets, they've also become a much larger part of benchmark indexes. Uh, and so you now have a much larger holding, typically, if you're st- staying close to that benchmark, in a very expensive market. And so that's something that we need to, to be aware of when we start increasing our exposure to to a market as it becomes uh, more and more expensive. And in terms of how this can reverse, there are really any number of of ways. The the one that we're seeing right uh, at the moment as as we talk today is that people are uh, becoming concerned about uh, how they how they value the long-term growth of technology companies it, it seems uh, against the background of of a rising cost of capital 
And so we're seeing some of these large technology companies do less well than the more economically exposed situations like energy and, and financial. So we're seeing what, what the, the professionals would call a sector rotation, but really just a change in the relative views of, um, of, of equity markets. Equally, we could see a, a very particular concern that could emerge in the US or in the US tech market that's not reflected elsewhere in the world. We could see something happen more globally in the recovery change of shape. All these things have happened in the past. We don't know what the future holds. That's the uncertainty of it. All we can look at is the probabilities. And from a probabilistic perspective, we know that uh, cheaper markets typically deliver uh, higher returns over the next five to 10 years than more expensive ones. And so at a time when very expensive stocks dominate the indices, that's actually quite an interesting opportunity for active managers, which we probably haven't seen to this extreme for the last few years. So you find yourself turning more now to the likes of stock pickers? I mean, I would say it, it does seem like, you know, we've had those kind of um, talking points before, you know, dispersion, etc. kind of benefits the active manager, but it hasn't always fed through into performance. But you, you still feel kind of optimistic on that front. I, I don't. I wouldn't characterize it as optimism uh, because, again, we don't know <laughs> when these things will come through. And by nature, I'm not an optimistic person. Uh, but I, I think when we when we think about it probabilistically, the opportunities are, are greater now than they have been in the past. Uh, not just for uh, individual stock pickers versus uh, broader benchmarks, but also at the asset allocation level because of the size of the, the U.S. market in. in global benchmarks. And so uh, so I think the, the opportunities are, are greater. Also, the, the, an interesting characteristic we have now is as the, the, the cheaper stocks, the cheaper sectors, it becomes smaller parts of benchmarks, then you can take a higher relative position uh, in, let's say, a, an economically sensitive market like energy, but with lower specific risk than you'd been able to do 10 years ago when there were much larger parts of Parts benchmark. So, in effect, the opportunity set has changed dramatically for, for active managers. Now, we don't know if uh, that's going to lead to uh, higher returns immediately, whether there's uh, another leg of performance from these, these large uh, technology stops, stocks that dominate the, the benchmark. Uh, but what we know is that there's more opportunities for, for active managers now than there's been for, been for a while. And so that's, uh, that's quite an attractive situation for, for good active managers. The challenge is, of course, as ever, finding these good active managers, because as we come off the back of a long period where it's just paid to follow the benchmark, uh, there's fewer around, and those that are around uh, may not be prepared to take the, the relative risk for the reasons we discussed earlier that they have been in the, in the past. So I'm not saying that uh, we're optimistic about active manager returns in general, just that uh, investors shouldn't ignore active managers because the opportunity set is better than it's been in the past. To bring a couple of those um, themes uh, together, Dan, if, if I might, um, you know, looking at the, the things that have been cheap uh, stocks, and you, you cited banks, for example, and, and stress tests, lots of fund managers have been waiting a long time for particularly the UK banks to stop being cheap and get a little bit more expensive. And, you know, a lot of those banks have actually delivered dividends, etc. And share prices still haven't, haven't really reflected that. And to you know, scale that up to the active manager piece. Lots of managers that have been, uh, that have 
have struggled in the prevailing environment where passives did better. Lots of investors have been waiting for them to uh, to do uh, to, to do better and for the, the turnaround to happen. And then it didn't really uh, happen. How, how as an asset allocator, do you think about time periods, how long to wait? When do you decide maybe that one isn't going to work? How, how does all of that fit into your framework? Dave, I, I can't tell you what a dangerous question that is to ask me as, as someone that can happily talk for a couple of hours on the, on the subject of, of forecasting a time period. So I'll try and keep it as brief as I possibly can. And, and that is to say that, of course, we tend to get confused as investors in what characterizes success, particularly over uh, what a relatively short time period. So these days, financial often judged by quarters and years or even three-year periods. But of course, what a fund manager is trying to do is uh, project forward the, um, the fundamental returns of a business or an asset class. And of course, even if they get that absolutely right, then the price will vary uh, depending on investors' enthusiasm, optimism, pessimism, emotional state uh, around that. And it's really only uh, over sort of five to 10 year period uh, can you be relatively confident uh, that if you get the uh, the fundamental forecasts correct, uh, that you uh, that the price will, will sort of come in line with that at, at, at some point over that period, because we know these trends can last for a long time. So I, we typically judge the success on what price does, but price is delinked from fundamental uh, expectations or fundamental returns. And really what investors are trying to do over long periods of time is uh, is think about what the what the fundamental returns of a business will be and whether that's uh, that's fully reflecting the price or, or not fully reflected in, in the price. And so I, I think that the first thing that we need to do all of us as investors, whether we're, we're, we're picking funds, uh, whether we are preparing end investors for, for the journey ahead of them, uh, whether it's, it's people like me working with uh, investment teams and helping them make decisions, we have to extend our investment horizon because what we're trying to do cannot be judged in days, weeks, months, or even a year or two. Uh, it's a much longer term process than that. Okay, well, some Really interesting points there, um, but I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Um, but thank you very much to Dan and uh, David for joining us, and thank you for listening.